Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. In this episode, I interviewed two people from the consulting firm Predictive UX, Karen Passmore, the CEO, and Steve Stesny, the data product lead. We covered a lot of different topics, but a key theme throughout is the importance of the user experience, both for data product producers and consumers in Data Mesh. Karen mentioned some parallels between Data Mesh and content management projects from you know, a decade plus ago, and how we can take some of the key learnings from those to apply to data mesh implementations. We discussed the importance of providing your internal people with the right content at their current point in the learning journey and how part of a successful implementation of something like data mesh is about making it far easy and more scalable to share your incremental work artifacts and knowledge, which is also really important because it means crucial company knowledge actually gets documented and it won't just walk out the door if that person leaves. Karen walked me through how they work with clients to conduct workshops to get everyone on the same page. There may be some infighting in the process, but it gives people a forum and the space to air out issues so the business can tackle them appropriately. It sets the agenda properly rather than trying to do kind of one-on-one meetings and, and not have everybody on the same page. Knowledge graphs end up being pretty crucial as well in most of predictive UX's implementations. Steve talked about some historic challenges he's had specifically in his past with decentralized team. If you don't manage the cross-domain collaboration, both at the business and the technical implementation levels, it is a major pain to stitch your data together from all those sources. So there needs to be good alignment on interoperability. This is where people talk about, is data mesh just high quality data silos? And if you don't get interoperability right, yes, that is a big challenge. Karen and Steve both emphasize the importance of user experience or UX for driving adoption. You can have the best solution in the world, but if the users don't want it, it's not going to be successful. So working with them throughout the process is crucial to get a successful implementation whether that is data mesh or pretty much any other project. 
Karen wrapped up by emphasizing the need to be patient and to not expect the same results or try to copy the exact path of other organizations implementing a data mesh. Every organization is quite unique and you need to figure out what might work for your organization. Take the learnings, not the what they did as the exact path towards what you're trying to accomplish. The last key point I'd extract is the need for multiple communication methods, especially for data requests. There may be some overlap in these methods, but it's a great way to ensure reliability and scalability of your business processes. Some people may not want to necessarily schedule a one-on-one meeting, but you also don't want to just throw JIRA tickets on people's backlogs. So you need to come up with ways where people can collaborate and that it's not, this is the only way that we can share those uh, data requests. So that I think you're going to learn a lot here. So thanks again, Karen and Steve. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Really excited about this episode here today. Uh, we're going to be talking about some pretty interesting topics around user experience and kind of some lessons learned around kind of content management and how that that can apply to what people are looking at with uh, data mesh. So I've got uh, Karen Passmore and uh, Steve Stesny here from Predictive US. Predictive UX, sorry. Uh, Karen is the CEO and Steve is the data product lead. So um, with that, if you wouldn't mind giving a little bit of introduction to yourself and kind of how you're, you've been looking at uh, data mesh, and then we can jump into some more questions from that. Yeah, sure. So thanks, uh, Scott, for the introduction. My name is Karen Passmore. I'm the CEO of Predictive UX. And for us, really, data mesh and working with data hasn't isn't new, um, working with data in particular. We've been focused on creating applications that are very data heavy for quite a while. And we've approached those from a user experience perspective, where we focus first on who the users are, how the data is going to be consumed, and what insights people need to get from the data and what kind of actions they want to take on data. And really my experience with this started way back with content management and looking at metadata in particular around content that was coming from disparate sources. And so in our experience, there's a lot of parallels between the work we did to understand users, the data, how the data would be consumed and what actions people want to take a very huge focus on findability. And that all parallels really nicely with data projects. Now, more recently, we've been focused on things like data products that use knowledge graphs, for example, and how are we getting data into the application? Where is it coming from? And 
making sense of that data from a normalization perspective for users so that they can find what they're looking for. They can feel like they trust the data. They can interact with the data appropriately. So there's just a lot of parallels there. That's a great, uh, I mean, a lot of what you said obviously dovetails with data mesh. That's great. And Steve, if you, if you wouldn't mind a, a little bit of background on yourself and kind of how you uh, have come towards uh, the data mesh stuff and especially with a title like data product lead. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. Hi, my name is Steve Stesney. I am the data product lead uh, for Predictive UX. Um, a brief background uh, for the last 15 or so years, I have been working, whether it be on the data platforms or the data product side, I've helped develop large data platforms uh, in the higher education world, uh, also the political world here in Washington, D.C. as well, too. And really, I'm coming at this uh, from a data product side. Um, I've what is now considered a data product manager or something I've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years, working with different groups within organizations to find the value in the data, and then working with the development teams and the user team and the data consumers to uh, create value for the end users um, and really taking it all the way from taking data within the organization, finding out, figuring out the best way to apply that value and then, you know, releasing products. Um, so I've been doing this for the last you know, 15 years or so. And as Karen mentioned, we've been getting into uh, more knowledge graphs, metadata hubs uh, of recent in some of our client engagements and focusing on that. So as I've been reading more and more about data mesh uh, and sort of where, you know, I'm coming at this from a data mesh standpoint is that I'm, I, I see it and, and have a lot of experience in sort of that data product role and understanding how a company or how an organization can take these different decentralized data silos and pull them together to create value. And I see a lot of parallels with what I'm doing uh, from a data product manager within the architecture and the, the process of, of data mesh. Yeah, I think that's great. And so there, there's, I have 15 follow-up questions already, but uh, let, let's uh, figure out where, where you'd like to go with this. So one of, one, I think really interesting path could be about knowledge graphs. I'm pretty uh, new to the concept and, and that of how that interacts with uh, data mesh and just as well, whether it's data mesh or not of, of how much is in the tooling, how much is in the people process side of connecting like data silos and things like that. Um, Karen, you'd also talked about um, with, with us uh, before the recording about learning from the content management side as to how those stories might tie in. So do you want to, do you want to maybe start with that and then we can kind of weave in the, these concepts around the, the tooling, which is the, metadata hubs and the knowledge graphs, but they're also heavily, heavily tied to people and process because metadata doesn't have any real use if people aren't actually creating the, <laughs> the proper documentation and same thing for knowledge graphs of like actually making the connections and things like that. So does that sound like a good uh, first path to go down? Yeah, that's great. And to pick up on that, Historically, again, going back to content management or knowledge management projects, you know, any product needs to have a kickoff, in my opinion, where you bring all of the key stakeholders together to create alignment. And the work that we do 
always includes looking at current state, just where are you today? And there's no easier way to think about current state than through the lens of people, process, and technology. And then we add to that things like content or UX, sometimes depending on the focus of the project. And then more lately, it's been data. So how that plays out with something like a knowledge graph project, I've actually done projects before where there's a combination of content management with the knowledge graph included there to help get the right data to the user at the right point in their journey. And as we work on those types of projects, we go in with the mindset of let's get everyone in the room together and just talk about what you have today. Where does the data live? What problems are you trying to solve? What pains exist? So that's coming at it from the human first perspective and creating empathy, not just for our own team about who the users are, but across the stakeholder group about who the users are. And it's important to have people who are representing the different groups within your organization, but it's also important in those conversations to bring your data scientists to the table and your engineers to the table because everyone has important information to share. And there's also a lot of terminology that's unfamiliar. So people start these projects and they often are excited. It's new technology. There's the promise, a business case that's been presented but oftentimes people don't really understand the technology. They don't understand how it works and what information is important. So in part of the process upfront, when you're looking at current state, you also have to look at how are we communicating today? What are we talking about? And what do we mean when we say something like data mesh? What is a knowledge graph? Where does it fit in? How do I interact with what the knowledge graph can produce in the UI? So that upfront training is really important at that kickoff stage. When we're creating empathy for each other, we also need to understand that everyone doesn't understand the technology the same way and what the expected outcomes are. So from that perspective, it gets everybody aligned and kicked off and hopefully going in the same direction. So that's a goal that, that we have. And it makes all the work that you have to do going forward much easier because you have buy-in from your business stakeholders, your data domain experts, data scientists, product managers, designers, developers, and your data consumers. They should all really be represented when you go about having a, like a data domain workshop to uncover current state pain points and what the use cases are for the project. I was going to say, this sounds a lot like um, what the interview that I had uh, more recently with uh, Danilo Sato and Andrew Harmel Law about domain-driven design for data, right? Of th this, it all kind of ties together, whether you're trying to actually figure out what are your domains versus developing that ubiquitous language, which is a specific thing within DDD. But like, I think it's a concept that you want to have in all of your interactions that <laughs> you get people on the same page talking the same language and that you, you can bridge those gaps very well. Um, would you mind giving a little bit of a definition of what you're talking about when you're thinking of a content management project and knowledge management project so that people can understand exactly where you're coming from on that? Sure, yeah. So in an enterprise organization, everyone is constantly creating work products, artifacts, right? Whether it's a document or an Excel file, or a PowerPoint presentation, or they want to send out a newsletter, there's a lot of information that gets exchanged. And we often consume that information through something like an intranet when we're working in an enterprise organization. 
And a long time ago, there was a, um, you know, human-centered design kind of came about and everyone realized that, oh, you know what, to make it easier to consume information, we should be consistent. We should be thinking about who the users are, how they want it to uh, use that information and where and when they need that information. And at that time, we started you know, there, there didn't used to be such a thing as a content management system, right? Way back when the internet <laughs> kicked off, everyone hand-coded pages and created everything from scratch every single time. And then content management systems came along where you can have a template to create your content. And that template makes it possible for that content to be created in a consistent manner. So whenever you come across a piece of news, you're going to see the byline, the date, the title, the subtitle, a short description, and the body copy, Right. And in those projects, when we go implement content management systems and we talk to people and organizations about what news means to them, what kind of information are you looking for? What kind of actions do you want to take when you find that content? That helps us understand how to create the forms they need to create that content in the content management system. So what metadata fields should exist there? And so that that to me is content management. The knowledge management really takes it a step further and focuses on a broader picture of you have knowledge within an organization. The worst thing that can happen is you're not capturing your knowledge. You're not managing it and governing it. And it walks out the door when people leave, right? Because we all know that it takes a lot of time, effort, and money to find the right people to work in your company. And then you're working with them over time. There's a huge investment there. And we don't want to lose that knowledge, but not only lose it when someone leaves, but we want to share it at the right point in time. But how does everybody else know what Steve or what Scott knows? Your knowledge management strategy can help solve that problem, and it's combined with your content management product, right? You need a way to create and capture that knowledge, and then you need communication strategies to make sure you're disseminating that knowledge. And I think at the forefront, um, for these projects to be successful, you need that human-centered design mindset coming at it from the perspective of who are the users, or we call them personas in user experience design, what's their journey interacting with this knowledge, And you can replace the word knowledge with data very easily, right? So I want to access data and I'm interested in data, but what do I want to do with that data? What's actionable about that data for me? What kind of insights am I trying to glean from that data? So in the past, when we've done content management projects where there was a knowledge graph involved, most often that was uh, on the back end of a search interface, right? Or as Steve mentioned earlier, it might be a metadata hub where we have a knowledge graph that's helping to surface information from disparate systems. And we want to find that information through a search interface, but all of this data or information from different systems has different metadata associated with it. So there's a process by which you need to normalize that metadata for search faceting. And in order to do that, to get back to data-driven design a little bit, you need to understand how people think, the terminology they use, so that when they go to use search, those facets, those terms they see there are familiar to them. Yeah, I, I talked with a, a company that was trying to develop a technology that did um, that kind of automatically where it would translate uh, each domain's phrasing into the user's phrasing. And so if the phrase, you know, okay, this person talks about this as a customer, this person talks about this as a lead or as a household and not the actual individual customer and it, it was it was kind of fascinating how, how difficult those those challenges can be um, so kind of 
tying this into what people are trying to do with with data mesh, it, it sounds like you know we've been tackling a lot of these people process challenges in the in these same ways for um, for years. And you know, data mesh isn't about trying to reinvent the wheel; it's about trying to take you know good and, and best practices from many different places and apply it towards data. What what are you finding that's been kind of different when doing that? I mean, Steve, you, you said you've been doing this for 10 to 15 years. Yeah. When you're talking about something with data mesh, what are you seeing that's different or, or what are those practices that maybe you're seeing that, that people apply? And, you know, obviously for, for both of you, like how does this tie in to somebody trying to go along their journey what's what's some good initial recommendations that you think about yeah that's a great question um and i'll I'll start with some of the challenges um that i've come across in you know as you know you have a business objective focused on whether it be creating uh, a visual whether it be creating a product or a platform uh, and, and the challenges I've, I've come across in my roles as, in, as sort of the, the data product manager is a lot of things that I think are going to also become challenges in data mesh as it becomes more decentralized. So uh, the biggest challenge I had is really wrangling the data from the different groups. Um, in, in a lot of work that we do with knowledge graphs, in particular in my most recent, uh, one of my more recent uh, client engagements, it was collecting data from different groups. So I had to go to different groups within the organization and understand the data that they were collecting. Um, they all had different governance around it. They had different storage. They had different everything about it. And I had to go through each and every individual uh, group and see what they had, figure out what they had, and start to pull it together. And then it was my responsibility to map it all and to make it all have it all make sense. And that was an additional challenge because we would be getting one data set from one group or data source from one. We'd have to go into another one and we have to figure that out. And, you know, a lot of my struggles with, you know, developing these products uh, were related to trying to figure out how to pull these different data sources together in a way that made sense. One of the reasons why I am working with, with Karen and, and with Predictive UX is because I started to realize very, very quickly that it was the UX pieces and the UX research that were missing uh, in these. And so I came at it as a data practitioner, as someone who was working as part of the data team and you know had an objective from the business side that said, hey, look, we want to pull all this data together. And I said, okay, great. I'll go get the data. I'll go do this. I'll pull it together. My data scientist and I will go wrangle it together and we'll produce something really, really cool. And we did for us. It was great. It looked fantastic. And, and they, my data scientist is like, this is fantastic. But, and it was. But when we turned around and we went back to the users a little bit, you know, they were involved a little bit. But the reality is we went back to them and they were like, so what? So you pulled the data together. You know, so you created a graph. It's like, or you put it, we put some taxonomy and ontology on it. And we called it a knowledge graph. Um, and it was interesting. But it lost that business value and it lost that business outcome of what really we were trying to drive and the intelligence we were trying to drive. And so I realized that we really needed that business focus and that UX focus uh, and doing that research and focusing on those business outcomes. And I think when we start to look at data mesh and you start to 
decentralize these data sources. I think a lot of the that idea of data as a product, you're going to really need some really strong data leads uh, in those areas who also understand UX, uh, who also understand the business side as well too. And so I think from a data mesh perspective, uh, what I'm seeing is data teams from, from an organization and specifically the ones in the centralized love it. And the idea of self-service is great. It means they don't have to do it, right? It means that, sure, you guys just get in there and, and get the data you want. You know, the different teams come in and say, um, hey, look, we need this piece of data. And the, the data team responsible for that data source is, sure, go for it. Here's the API. You know, you know here's, the, here's the login information and off you go. I ran into a situation recently where uh, we were pulling together information into a, a metadata hub. And we needed this specific, the business was like, we want this piece of data we know is over in this system. And so we reached out, we talked to them and they were like, here's the API, here's the endpoints, off you go. And we're like, okay. I mean, it, and it, it was, it took a lot of time and effort working with that group just to even just understand what they were, what data was in there and how it was going to be used and everything. And so, you know, thankfully I came from a background and have been focused a lot on UX and the questioning and getting at the consumer and all of that. Uh, otherwise we would really struggle because the development team basically threw up their hands and said, what are we supposed to do with this? Um, and the other, the other team on the other end said, you guys figure it out. And so I think that level of collaboration that's going to have to happen if we decentralize um, in the data mesh uh, is going to increase. And I think it's going to really put from sort of a product role an increased importance on those data products and those data product leads and managers as being crucial to the collaboration in the UX. And it's not even going to become more of a data position. It's going to be more of a collaboration position uh, in, in really being able to to go back to what Karen said earlier and what we were talking about ubiquitous language. You know, we got into a situation also recently where one data source was pulling information on one thing and another group had a different definition of the same data source, excuse me, the same data point. And when they saw it within a search result, they said, well, we call it this and we call it that. And so it was the same data. Right. They, they, it was still, still exactly what they wanted to see. But there became that negotiation. And I think that negotiation and that collaboration all is going to fall. Um, and I don't really know, like from a, a data mesh perspective, it's really going to put a lot of pressure and a lot of focus on those data product managers to be able to wrangle the data, to interpret the data and to ne- do those different negotiations between groups and I see a challenge with if it becomes hundreds of different data silos, I, I just, to me, it, it, it's really going to be quite the challenge. I found it challenging over the last 10, 15 years to pull together, you know, I had very focused projects and, and products where I was dealing with maybe a half a dozen, maybe two dozen data sources. I can't imagine trying to all within one organization and, and, and not tremendously large organizations. I find it really difficult that to see from a data product standpoint that being able to do all those negotiations is going to be di- difficult. And now there's a, a, a little bit of talk about sort of the data ops uh, aspect of uh, those data silos. And I think that's going to become crucial. I think the tooling and the development of that and the maturity of those data ops where siloed and um, siloed and decentralized uh, data teams can figure out a way to take their data, to package it in a way in which the rest of the organization can then, you know, interact with it nicely think that area needs a lot of maturity. Um, and I think that's where you're going to see a lot of leadership from sort of that product side about how that all happens. 
And uh, Karen, did you have anything you wanted to add on there? Yeah. So going back to the first part of what Steve mentioned around collecting the data and making sense of all the data, I think at the forefront of a project, this kind of gets back to content management as well. When we embark on any content management or knowledge management project, we always want to look at what exists within the organization today. So we talked about people process content, uh, or sorry, people process technology, content UX, and we want to look at data now and say, what data exists in the organization? So with content, we always looked at it and said, let's get a data dump. We called it a data dump, even though, you know, whatever. D- data can be anything, right? It can be content. It can be numbers. And we would want to, you know, get a, a raw sampling or a dump of that data so we could see what it is, what metadata exists around it, right? And then we do some analysis on it. And we have to talk to the different organizations who own that data, as Steve mentioned, and you go through that process of rationalizing it, you're creating this type of data, this other organization over here is creating this type of data, let's make sure these two organizations are talking, and we come to some alignment. A lot of this happens in workshops. And we lead these workshops, again, from a human centered design perspective, design thinking perspective, and there's a lot of strategies we can use to get people talking and create alignment. So it doesn't feel like a threatening situation, right? I'm going to lose control over my content or over my data. And then I think the big thing that I see as um, a real gap right now and a question mark, and I don't, I don't quite yet think anyone knows how to solve this completely, is the governance aspect of it. And as Steve mentioned, as data grows and, you know, you have multiple projects that are deploying or products that are deploying against, you know, all of this data, how do you govern that data? How do you keep your eyes on the integrity of that data and who owns that. And he mentioned earlier data ops. And I think this gets back to, again, how content management matured. You know, prior to the internet taking off and content management systems getting developed, we didn't have digital organizations, you know, within enterprise companies, right? And they came along after the fact because we realized a need for some type of centralized management and strategy around your knowledge and your content. And now I think we also need to have that around data and it's going to look very similar. And maybe these organizations merge or your, you know, uh, content management, knowledge management discipline within an enterprise organization grows to accommodate data. And then you have, you know, your steering committees and governing body there. But then you also have to have those within the different groups in the organization who are managing that data. So if we decentralize, which is what content management did as well you need to have the um, ability to govern whatever data is getting produced out of that one small unit within the organization, because data is not going to get produced in a silo in one group within a company, right? It's still going to come from many different areas, but I think the management, the strategies and the technology can all be managed centrally. And then you have a team of people like your data strategists, your product managers, your user experience designers who can all sit within that group of the organization data ops and help other um, disciplines within the organization deploy their data products. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think all of that is uh, there's so many different things that we could go down from an Avenue perspective, but um, Steve on the interoperability, I fully agree with you that right now I have not seen literally anything of people talking about interoperability. It's something that I'm going to dive into, but if all we have is high quality data silos, data mesh is fake. Right. If you don't have those standards that you have internally to make interoperability possible, then you're you're going to have just an you're going to have high quality data silos, which yay 
I mean, that's not really a good thing, right? (laughs) You'd rather have kind of messy things that isn't siloed than just high quality silos. So, um, but I think, Karen, what you were talking about, the concept of data on the inside, data on the outside, um, I've been kind of talking about data on the threshold as well. When you think about doing that data dump and saying, what, what could we, <laughs> what, what more could we be sharing? What should we be sharing as well? Um, but I think that's a really difficult question um, from when we're starting because the way data is, is stored relative to the application isn't the way that the data matters relative to actually data, right? Exactly. That's the whole thing of event storming, of, of uh-huh. figuring that out. So, um, but you, you also talked about a lot of the collaboration aspect and, and kind of starting out there. How have you found is like an effective way to get people on the same page? Because if people aren't on the same page, it's just you're going to be trying to throw technology at a people process thing and, and that just in general doesn't work. So like what what have you found that's that's actually effective for especially for that that UX empathy? Because data engineering folks building their data platforms in, in data mesh, they that self-serve platform is for the data producers and the data consumers. And they're probably more aligned with the data consumers, but for the data producers, like how do they extract out of the the people producing these data products creating these data products what what they want and need is it is it just simple conversations or do you have like a kind of template of here are your five questions you know here here it's like the those weird dating question things where it's like <laughs> the 40 questions to truly get to know your your person on a first date and and you know it, is there a way that you recommend for that? Yes, we utilize workshops heavily at the forefront of a project. And that's what I was alluding to earlier, that you have to have representation at those workshops from all of the different stakeholders, or I call them participants, right? You need to have your business sponsors there, but you also want to have, to your point, your data producers, your domain experts, and and all of these people being in the same room together can create quite a big workshop. And we've done it before, but they can be a lot of fun. And it actually kind of airs all the frustration and dirty laundry and feelings that everyone has. And you have an opportunity to work through that together as a team using design thinking strategies. And the design thinking strategies are particularly effective because they're about creating, you know, harmony really and saying, you know, everyone's going to have a chance to speak. Everyone's going to be heard. And then together collectively, we're going to use a framework for decision making that isn't about how anyone feels. It's really about what makes the most sense for the business. And we can use that opportunity to define our business goals. And are we looking to use data for revenue protection for this particular project or product we're working on? Are we looking for increasing revenue or we wanna create efficiencies? What are our goals? And let's lay that as a groundwork for making all of our decisions. And then we can begin to look at things like prioritization, you know, and, and, and we don't even get to prioritization though until everyone's had a chance to brainstorm, right? And we say, what are all the different ways um, or, or problems and pain points that we're having? What are the, what are the things we're trying to solve? And once we understand what we're trying to solve, then we can kind of prioritize which of these feels like the most important problem to start with. And then from there, we can look at how might we solve that problem. And we don't even need to think about the technology yet. 
the technology is off the table because that's going to skew everything that we say. But let's just focus on how we might solve a problem first. What are we trying to get to as an outcome? And then we can start to pull the technology back in and look at, well, what does exist today? Does it make sense to continue to invest in what we have today? Do we need to buy something new? Do we need to build something new? And we kind of just step by step move forward through things in that manner. So I've got... uh like a couple of quick follow-up questions that we, we can dig into because I want to get Steve's uh, view on that as well. But when you're talking about these big workshops, is it within a domain or is it the whole company or is it really dependent? Because, I mean, I'm thinking of this could really, really spiral. And then the other <laughs> aspect is um, how do you develop that blameless type of introspection into what are our challenges and why they exist and how we can do them. Um, and then the third question, sorry to pile on, is you <laughs> talked about hitting the most difficult first. Do you think of that as, as kind of a difficult mountain to climb versus where can we find uh, what I'm finding POC recommendations from most folks is find a value uh, proposition, but that's pretty easy to, to get going. So right. like hit, hitting all three of those. And then I, I'd love to hear from, from both of you on, on kind of those aspects. Sure. To answer your first question in terms of who should attend the workshop, does it include all domains? And you're right. It, it's contextual. It depends on what the goals of the organization are. So I've worked through workshops where it was being sponsored at a pretty high executive level. And that executive has said, everybody's showing up to understand what we're doing. And we might start with all of our domain experts in the room together so that everyone can hear everything that's going on to create some sense of transparency, to talk about communications and goals, of, you know, trying to assuage anyone's fears. And then we'll do breakout sessions as needed. And we'll say, we're going to do, you know, breakout session A on you know Monday and do another one in the afternoon with a different group and then go through the week kind of with the breakout sessions. But then we bring everybody back together so that, again, we're creating transparency We've gone, we've talked in our silos, <laughs> then we bring it back together and, and kind of let everyone know what's going on. And then in terms of um, the emotional side, right, that you mentioned, I think that was your second question. You know, <clears throat> I won't tell you that workshops always go smoothly and everybody's getting along <laughs> wonderfully because that's not true. <laughs> There's definitely moments where uh, we think people need to step out of the room. And I think a lot of it depends on your facilitators. If you have skilled facilitators who understand how to work with people who are going to come to the table with, sometimes, uh, rightfully so, a lot of strong opinions and feelings about what's happening because they may have made a lot of efforts in the past to get things to a place of improvement or they've invested a lot of money in something and they feel like maybe it's going to get exposed as a bad investment at this workshop. So people come in with all kinds of um, preconceived notions about what it's going to be like. And I think the facilitators really have to do a good job of working with the um, different st uh, people who are sponsoring the project in your enterprise organization and say, we're going to need your help navigating these uh, relationships because we understand what's happening here. And let's talk about some strategies for how we're going to manage that when things start to escalate. And so you can de-escalate in the moment. You can take your breaks. You can go out to a private breakout session if you need to talk about some things differently because it does happen and people do get upset sometimes. But for the most part, we have smooth workshops and people are happy to hear what's going on and see this level of transparency. And we're really open in all of the work that we do so that no one feels like 
we're the you know consultants over in the corner having a conversation just with the group that sponsored the project, and we're going to do whatever they say. We try to make sure that there's a level playing field. And then the third thing that you talked about is how do you you know focusing on the thing that is uh, the the most complex. What we actually try to do is not focus on the most complex thing, but we look at from a pilot perspective. We do want to look at something that has high value, but also maybe low cost, but really it's about the high value at the end of the day, because sometimes it might cost a little bit more, but if you're going to be laying the foundational layer for natural language processing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and you know your data is going to start to mature, and you can see that you've got some really clearly laid out KPIs or OKRs, success metrics for that particular product, that's what's going to make a good pilot. But not only that, pilots often will launch and be great and then it all falls apart and nobody else does another data project right so how do you how do you get past that initial pilot stage user experience is critical in this piece and measuring the success of that pilot so what we do is go back and say okay we've deployed release number one and now that it's deployed we're not done we need to go back and talk to the users observe them interacting with this data and make sure that it's actually solving the problems we said it was going to solve and then we iteratively go back and keep improving the product over time and then one of the things that i think is hugely important is having data champions people who are going to speak out within the organization as part of your communications and marketing strategy around that pilot any product needs a marketing strategy, even if it's internal to an enterprise organization. And you have to be able to communicate about the problems that you were solving and the metrics that you're tracking and what the outcomes were, what you learned along the way. And I think that helps people understand that there's real value here, especially if you have this solid framework for approaching the data product. And then you can talk about your success story. And it helps create buy-in for future pilots or in different areas of the organization. Yeah. And, and Steve, if, if we could get your thoughts on the same with that bent as to the technical people, right? Of the on the ground, like how do you get them bought in to, you know, like the, the I don't wanna call them the grunts, but you know what I mean? Like the people that are, are really um, doing the day-to-day development that they're bought in and that they're interested in participating because I think that can be a real challenge. Yeah, and so I'll give you, um, two examples of that. Um, and so I think from a data consumer side, um, a lot comes down to the design and being able to put in front of the data consumers designs um, of what the end product will potentially look like and what the value and how they can interact with the data. Most data consumers are extraordinarily visual. Um, they want to see graphs, they want to see charts, they want to see buttons. And so first step in a lot of this is getting the technical team on board is to really get at the data consumers and understand what they're looking to do. I find the technical teams really love to solve challenges and really love to solve problems, but you need to really define that problem and define that challenge and how you do it is with the data consumers first. What are you trying to do? Um, Have, you know, work with a designer and a project I'm working on now is, you know, we pulled up a, search result design and we move things around and we ask them to take a look at the, this data point. What do you like? What do you not like about it? what do you want to do with it? And a lot of those things I knew uh, as we were working with the end, the data consumers, uh, the end user, that the technical team had not, cha- had not, had not 
actually done yet and had, had actually solved yet. Uh, but I knew we could. And so a lot of that getting the technical team on board is really first defining what is the actual business need? What's the user need? What's the unmet needs, right? And then turning that back to the, uh, the technical team and allowing them to like dig in and, and use their different technical expertise and be like, oh, I found this over here and I did that and we can do this and we can do that. And that really gets them excited about it and about understanding, you know, how they're going to do it. So that's how I like to do it, how I like to use it uh, as sort of a, a data product manager is I really leverage the, the data consumers to get, to, to get that information. Uh, and then turn it over to the technical team to really solve that challenge. And it's really about defining that challenge from the user perspective uh, and the human first, because a lot of data problems over the last you know, 10, 15 years have been driven from the data team. Um, and the data challenges is what they see. And the answer is that it's really not what, <laughs> maybe what they see, it's what the end user sees. I also think from in the technical world too, I think there's a lot of interest in modeling. So, you know, there's a lot of data out there. And so when you're talking with different data science team members, you know, they know, they can use Python, they can pull down the information, they can pull it all together and, and make these really cool stuff and these end visuals. But a lot of it, that collaboration and a lot of that sort of strategic thinking that goes on in that realm is around the model. Um, and I think one of the things I want to see grow in that space when we're talking about sort of the decentralized uh, nature of data mesh is that modeling piece. How does one group see this data being used from a modeling perspective and how does another what terms are different? How are they different? And I really think that from you know my standpoint, from a data mesh perspective, is going to be critical, right? How do you take the information? How do you model it to get your end result? And then how do others view that model, right? Where do other people, where does the other fit? Because when you're looking at like a, a knowledge graph with millions of nodes and all of that, it really comes down to the data model. Right. What are the relationships? How are they related? And then being able to show that to another, you know, and collaborate with other groups and being like, oh, we have this piece of data that fits here and we can fit this here. And I think that's really where the technical teams are really going to get bought into the interoperability, but also just using that their, their data. It's like they have these massive data sources, but it's really that model and how they're going to be using it that really needs to come alive in more visual format going forward in order to increase that collaboration and interoperability. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that all makes sense. I think what I, you know, I keep coming back to as well is the how do we actually in in organizations that haven't historically had these conversations how do you get people at the same table and that they can have those conversations is it is it that they're used to it from the workshop or that they they've started heading down that path and it's not as difficult because i mean i i had an interview with with somebody this week who uh for the podcast who said um, they literally have a form that the people can uh, fill out for that consumers can fill out to say, <laughs> data producers, this is what we really want. This is exactly, you know, that they didn't know how to make appropriate asks because they didn't know what people had and they didn't know really what, what they wanted. So do we have to teach the consumers to understand what they want first or, or Th those types of things. So, and, and I think uh, the, just like, I guess, what, what have you found that's worked and, and what have you found that really, really doesn't work so people can avoid those? I, so I, I wanted to add here, since I thought Steve was going to go there, but 
What I see in mature organizations who are working with data on a regular basis and building products off of that data is they use multiple methods to communicate what exists, requests, uh, ways to ask for training, a deeper understanding. And some of the methods include workshops for sure, but there are also a lot of uh, people are using Slack today and the mature version of using Slack looks like you have dedicated chat rooms for data questions and it's ask data, right? Or maybe you have data separated by, you know, divisions in your organization, ask HR data, ask, you know, the next thing, you know, whatever finance data and creating an environment where it's okay to ask data questions openly in Slack is a huge game changer for people. And in order for that to get rolled out and be effective, you know, again, starting with a workshop or a setting where it's comfortable and saying, you know, we want to talk to each other more. And being able to do that requires setting up a mindset within each of those disciplines that we want you to be available to the consumers of this data. We want to drop the, you know, lower the barriers and every conversation doesn't need to happen within a project or within a meeting. It's okay to be a little bit more informal and get to know each other and not feel like you have to be afraid of Bob in the data group <laughs> and you're going to annoy him if you ask a question about the data. And it's okay if Bob tells you, yes, we have that data. It's really expensive to do that. We can't do it at that interval or we can't do it at that scale, right? And so that just kind of, I think, lowers the barrier of communication between the different groups if you just make it an option that data consumers and uh, data developers and data scientists can speak to one another in, in these uh, Slack channels. The other thing that I've seen is um, pod structures and people have different ways of talking about this. Some companies call them triads and, and they have different names. But in mature organizations who are working with this human-centered design mindset, their teams are always comprised of engineers and designers. And the engineers and designers are working together side by side to represent both the data and the data consumer needs from a human-centered design perspective. And they're working together from the beginning all the way through to the end of the project. And, you know, I have a client that I've worked with for a while now who operates in this way. They work with tons and tons and tons of data and they are all work used to working together um, with that mindset on every single project so much so that it's been institutionalized. It's not even a question. So I think there's a transformation that needs to take place in organizations who want to achieve that level of maturity. And like with any maturity, you have to, uh, you know, start with your baseline current state and kind of map your way to the future state. And then I'll hand it over to Steve for your thoughts. Yeah. And I think um, Karen brings up a, probably the most important aspect of this. And that is, it's about pulling the groups together that can answer those difficult questions. So when we're talking about sort of what works and doesn't work, right? You're pulling together people from the data side, you're pulling together people from the product side, you're pulling together people from the business side and lowering the barriers to ask questions so that there can be a good discussion about this is the data that I want. Can we get it? How much does it cost? And all of those questions get asked and answered in an environment in which people feel comfortable. I think a lot of uh, what doesn't work is one of the groups going out and finding a solution before they go ahead and talk to other groups. So 
business will go be like, I want this piece of data and this is how I want it. And this is where I want to go. And the product are like, okay. And the data are like, well, we don't even have that data. So it's really about building that initial collaboration. And that's what works. I mean, that's, that is, and, and, and like Karen said, there's a lot of different ways to structure it, but it's about lowering those barriers to ask those questions so that people in, in groups don't go off and find a solution and bring it back to the table. Cause that's not going to work. A lot of what, uh, what what's going to work is collaboration amongst the internal groups to find the solution and to figure out what will work best for that organization. And so that's really what works. And like Karen said, there's a lot of different uh, permutations of that. Yeah. And I think uh, a question that, that comes from that, that unfortunately I don't think we have time to, to dig into is, is how do you then take that to scalability, right? It's it Slack messages uh, you don't necessarily have the tracking and things like that. So do you try and push it all to, oh, everything has to go through the data catalog, but then that's more formal or, right. you know, oh, it's it's a better system than the JIRA tickets. But, uh, you know, nobody likes just random things popping up on their backlog. You'd rather right. have the conversation. But. Yeah, I think you do have to couple that with a, a support ticketing system and, and ways to take conversations out of Slack into a more formalized context. But yeah, good good point. So uh, as we're kind of heading towards time here, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you uh, wanted to cover uh, that, that you think is really important or any kind of key wrap up points that, that you think people should really keep in mind from everything we talked about today? For me, I think it's about patience and time. Change takes time. And I think being patient with the process and understanding your organization is going to be different from the organization of, of your friend where they are working and understanding your your baseline. Where are you from a maturity perspective heading you know, with regard to data and how you're thinking about the consumers of the data and understanding that seeing the vision doesn't mean you can execute on that vision and have it be a reality for you within six months. So just be patient, I think, is the, is the key here. And I think from my standpoint, uh, you know, if you look back when you talk about the the monoliths of the data and the centralized data system, you know, the users were kind of left out of that. And from a data mesh perspective, we want to make sure that the users aren't left out of that and the data consumers and that type of information flow from the users all the way back into the different decentralized group needs to be established. Uh, it needs to be a focus if data mesh is going to be successful. I think those are all great, great points to kind of wrap up on. So at, um, where can people find you? What, what do you want people reaching out to you about? Um, you know, what's, what's the best way to kind of get in, con- in contact if people want to follow up on what we discussed today? Uh, you can reach us on our website at predictiveux.com. And certainly you can reach out to either of us directly, you know, as Stesney at predictiveux.com or Karen at predictiveux.com. We'd love to talk to anyone and we're doing a uh, monthly meetup series as well on data and how to make sense of all that data from a UX perspective. So we'll be posting those and we'd love to have people come. We keep it really informal so that we can answer questions for people and just talk <laughs> right about what problems people are really facing as they're trying to approach this from a human first mindset. And as always, I'll drop those links in the show notes, but uh, you know, I really want to thank you too for a great conversation today, and I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd again like to thank my guests today, Karen Passmore and Steve Stesney from Predictive UX. You can find their contact information as well as the a link to the meetup they had mentioned in the show notes. Thank you. 
Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.